I'm Juita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Tenants and landlords. It's hard to think of two groups of people who need each other more, but like each other less. The media is rife with stories about housing, landlords, and tenants. The lack of affordable housing, the slumlord who doesn't make repairs, and the tenant always behind on rent. These are some of the enduring images and ideas that underpin many of our discussions about housing and tenants. But there are other stories as well. Stories about tenant resistance. Tenant organizers and activists pushing back against bad landlords and holding governments accountable. Underlying all the chatter about housing is a fundamental truth. Housing is a human right. Today, we discuss the tenant class. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Juita Gupta. Today, I'm wearing a teal shirt with quarter sleeves and a round neck, and my hair is pulled back in a bun. I also have a pair of black headphones that go over my ear. It's probably not very visible to you because my hair is also black. I'm joining you from the AMI Accessible Media Studios in Toronto, and it's shaping up to be a rainy day here in the city and has brought, I think, some welcome relief to all of us dealing with wildfires across the country. I hope you're staying safe and looking after yourselves and your loved ones. I know we often talk about housing being in a state of crisis as well across Canada. We've had numerous stories about housing, and here on The Pulse, we intend to take a deeper look at the question of housing, tenants and landlords. And so what we're going to be doing is over the next three weeks, we'll have three experts joining us to give us their take on housing. What are some of the barriers? Where do they see the opportunities? And what are our solutions? We'll be spending a lot of time next week and the week after that having a discussion about disability and housing. But this week, I wanted to have a discussion to foreground our three-part episode on disability and housing. I'm delighted to welcome to the show economist Ricardo Tranjan. Ricardo is, a, is with the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, and he recently wrote a book, The Tenant Class. Ricardo, I am so pleased and delighted to welcome you to the program. Thanks so much for being here. Hello, and thanks for having me here. When we talk about housing in Canadian media, Ricardo, we often hear the term used as a housing crisis in Canada. And yet, in your book, in the very first paragraph, you say there is no such thing as a housing crisis. What do you mean by that? Well, what I'm saying is that housing crisis is not the correct way of talking about what we're seeing today. What we're seeing today is a, a rental market that is largely unregulated, that allows uh, landlords to continually increase their profit margin, that allows private investors to build wealth. Whereas on the other hand, you have tenants that are struggling, um, that are paying too much in rent, that are having a hard time securing a unit and, and never mind building long-term financial security. And so when we talk about 
crisis, we usually tend to think about something that it's, it's, it's new and unexpected that hit us by surprise, whereas this has been happening for a very long time. When we talk about a crisis, we usually think about something that negatively impacts everyone or, or most people, which is not the case here. It's this, you know, impacts mostly tenants and tenants only. And also when we talk about a crisis, we tend to assume that everyone is engaged or interested in finding a solution. And this is the part that I find most disconcerting, this assumption that because of a crisis, everyone wants to solve it. When in fact, there are segments of the population of the economy that don't want things to be any different and they are actively lobbying to keep the things exactly the way they are because they're benefiting tremendously from it. That's why I argue that housing crisis is not the right way to talk about this. Well, the other thing we hear a lot in the news, and you can let me know if you have a quarrel with this, is an emphasis on affordable housing or the lack of affordable housing. Is it enough for us to talk about affordable housing or do we need to take the conversation further? Yes, I do have a beef with the way we talk about affordable housing because it's just kind of like, what does it even mean? Affordable to who? And, 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 and it, it is just this kind of plastic term that politicians throw around because no one would ever be against affordable housing, right? We can, again, assume that it's it's a solution that we're all actively looking and engaged in, in, in delivering. Um, governments used to, politicians, I mean, and, and governments too, used to be more clear about saying public housing, social housing, not for profit housing. And I think that's a better term that's, that communicates that what we want is to build more housing that we will not have profit as part of the equation. What we want is to either increase through construction the size of all housing that is outside of the market or we want to acquire more housing that is currently in the private sector and bring it to the non-for-profit sector. I think that non-market housing is a much better term. The other argument we hear a lot, and this is especially true for anyone who's taken an introductory economics class, is, you know, supply goes down, demand goes up, prices go through the roof. And that, a lot of people argue, is what's happening with housing. And their solution is that if you just build more housing, it's going to take the pressure off the housing market. And of course, it's going to be private developers who build this housing for us. But the moment you introduce more supply in the housing market, it's going to help to address some of those shortages and allow tenants to have more options and maybe more affordable housing. How does that argument track with you, Ricardo? Do you think that if we just address the supply side of this, we would get around the housing problems that we're dealing with at the moment? Yes, I also have a difficulty with that argument. And, and this is a sort of really complicated um, question because we do need more housing. Um, the, as the Canadian population continues to grow in whichever way we're growing, um, we need to build more house that accommodates that population growth. We need more purpose-built rental units, you know, buildings that are um, designed for tenant families, um, which we have stopped building by and large um, over the past uh, 20 years or so, depending on what city you're talking about. Um, so yes, we need to build more, but building is, is necessary, but not sufficient. Just building anything, anywhere, 
and 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 renting it at any cost will not solve uh, the issue of providing housing to tenant families that is more fairly priced. Um, it takes other measures on top of that. It takes uh, again increasing the supply of mar- or housing that is non market housing. It takes um, strengthening the rent control so that the new units that come to the market come and remain at a a stable rent levels. So it is a self-serving argument often um, because the, the, the second part of the argument is that developers and landlords need less regulations and more incentives for governments because that's how the story goes right well oh, we have a housing crisis okay great what's the solution more housing great we built more housing prices didn't go down we built more house prices didn't go down we built more houses prices didn't go down oh what should we do now oh we should build even more but now this time governments should you know remove the so-called red tape they should remove regulations for for developers they should provide us more subsidies more cheap um, loans and and then the house is going to be more affordable and then we do that and it doesn't happen so there's there's a self-serving argument that on the part of the industry uh, that is ultimately um, they're trying to get a, a even um, a more sweet deal for themselves and and that's problematic and and won't won't help ultimately won't help tenants the other measure i'm surprised you haven't really talked about is some kind of uh, it could be a national rent subsidy program so what if we just target the income side of the equation and gave tenants more money to put towards their rent is that one way we could ensure the tenants are a little more secure in their homes it is a necessary measure and and those programs that do exist right now the rates are often inadequate and they don't match uh, the real rent costs. Um, so there's this is really important side uh, of the equation, which is to make sure that the income of tenants um, it's 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 growing at, at an, an adequate pace, and that any rent subsidy also is growing at an adequate pace. Uh, but it will never be adequate if we don't control profit on the other side, right? So it, we can um, just keeping pushing. Um, for increases in, in, in rent subsidies and in rent supplements, where on the other hand, uh, landlords can just keep r- r- rising rents at you know at whatever rate they decided to 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 to, to raise rents by. So it, it needs to be both sides. Um, otherwise, uh, what we're doing is an enormous transfer of income from governments to landlords via tenants, right? In your book, you talk about the tenant class. In fact, that is the title of your book. I should have asked you this earlier, but just for those of us who are not up on our Karl Marx, why is it so fruitful for you to think about this in terms of the haves and the have-nots and to really start to think about tenants as a class? I found it fruitful because in our current economic thinking and in the current um, economic discussions that we have around housing, um, we take power out of the equation. We take politics out of the equation. We take social conflict out of the equation. And we present uh, this artificially clear picture of supply and demand. This goes up and this goes down and there's the market mechanism. And we almost assume that it's, it's a natural process that has natural laws behind it and all we have we can do it is to adapt it to it and to uh, respond to 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 the demands imposed by us f- 
by the market, right? Which is sort of the classic, neoclassical economic thinking. And, and I think not only Marx, but other political economists um, were aware that um, land um, and housing are extremely contentious issues. Um, there are um, the center of a lot of social conflict and, and political conflict. And, and um, there's a lot of power um, conversations and, and, and dynamics that take place around housing and land. And it's, I think, unhelpful to ignore those conversations, those, 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 to ignore those dynamics, right? Um, so, so I think that's one of the reasons why I go back to, to the classics. It is my attempt to bring power, politics, and social conflict, which does exist. We can't pretend it doesn't. It does exist. It's just whether or not we talk about it, and I think it's helpful to talk about it. Ricardo, we've been talking about social conflict and power relationships, and I can't help but wonder if in having a discussion as we are right now about landlords and tenants, if part of that conversation also includes a discussion about where indigenous people come into this. And thinking through Canada's role as a colonizing power and the dispossession of lands from indigenous people, as we go about establishing this tenant class that we've been speaking about today, what role does decolonization play in those efforts? Absolutely, that's a, a key part of it. Housing is built on land, and and when we talk about land in so-called Canada, um, we're talking about land uh, that it was colonized. We talked about people who um, were murdered in order for the colonizers to take over that land. We're talking about folks who continue to be forced into assimilation so that that land can be used for whatever purposes. Um, the government of Canada and the property-owning classes decides to, 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 that is a priority. So it is part of the, the, the bringing power back to the conversation, right? Um, it is part of, bringing, part of bringing politics back to the conversation. Um, land and the housing that is built on it is at the center of a historical um, struggle. And let's just talk about it openly and let's talk about what it means or in terms of our responses, what it means in terms of the ways we, um, we try to solve the so-called housing crisis. I think that is the way forward. It is not pretending that this is just a technical solution. I can't help but think back to the pandemic, Ricardo, because you'd done a lot of media back then talking about a paper that you had put out saying that, according to your research, many tenants were living paycheck to paycheck, that most, if they lost their jobs, could not afford to pay more than one additional month's rent. And at that time, you and other housing activists had said, maybe, maybe it's time, considering the pandemic, to look at some sort of a rent forgiveness program across Canada. So many people had lost their jobs, so many people were struggling financially, that now would be the moment to bring forward some sort of a rent forgiveness program. And I also remember hearing at the time the counter-argument being put forward, which is, well, 
what happens to landlords? They have bills to pay as well. And you had stories in the media which said, you know, here's a family, this is their investment property. The tenants aren't paying the rent, so now the family is forced to sell their investment property. It really felt as though even though we were dealing with a pandemic, the plight of tenants was equal to or at par with the plight of landlords and their investment properties. What do you make of the that argument or that discourse? How accurate and fair is it to talk about landlords as small-scale mom-and-pop landlords who are trying desperately to cling on to an investment property or using the rent to stay afloat financially? I think it's highly inaccurate, and I devote an entire chapter of the book trying to show that it is not actually the case. In Canada, we have a, a very romanticized notion of landlord. We think about a mom and pop landlords. We think about families struggling to pay their own mortgage and then renting a part of their house. That is usually the, 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 the sort of, the, I think, the typical landlord in the minds of, of a lot of, of people. And, and that is also the, the, the notion and the image that gets often reinforced through, through media reporting. And then when we look actually at the numbers, we see that a very large share of landlords are increasingly corporate landlords. They're like very large firms that own um, a very large number of units. And then there's a share that is what we call financialized landlords, which is um, investment companies that use real estate and um, rental units as an asset to increase um, there to search for and, and, and increase returns on, on investment. Um, then we have some businesses uh, that you could maybe call them small businesses that own a share of, of, of the rental stock too. But again, they're businesses and, um, and there's nothing that indicates that their operations or, or their margins of profits are any lower than any other business. And then we have a share of private investors. So people who own a second or third or fourth unit and put those units for rental, um, for rent. And, um, and then I digged up a little bit and I looked at what their finances look like. And, um, you know, their net income is quite high compared to the other uh, segments of the population. And so, and then you get at the end of it, you have a very small share of homeowners whose income is below or around the median income and who rent a portion of their houses, a room or a basement or, or some part of their house in which they also live in order to bring additional income that allows them to sort of get by. But that is a very small segment of the, the, the overall rental market. So we need to talk about it, um, I think, more in terms of landlords as a business practice, as an investment practice versus tenants. More similarly to the way we think about employers and workers. I think that that is a more helpful um, a more accurate way to think about it. You know, we, we think about bosses and, and workers, we should think about landlords and tenants in a similar way, rather than thinking about um, some, you know, n nice landlord individual who, you know, bakes muffins and, and bring bottles of wine to their tenants because they're all friends and, and they live in, in the same house, right? So that, that exists, but it's not representative.
It's really interesting to wonder why, even though these ideas are so skewed, we continue to harbor these very limited notions about landlords and, and tenants. The other thing that I've been thinking about a lot is there must no doubt be several myths about tenants. I can just think of a few on my own, which is, you know, everybody wants to own a home. If you're not a homeowner, then you haven't, quote unquote, made it. You haven't succeeded in Canada. And that if you are a tenant, you're not there by choice. It's more a temporary stage or a transitory stage. You might be a student and you're renting uh, while you're in university. But eventually, you're going to move on and buy a house. What sort of myths exist about tenants? And how have those myths and those ideas contributed to a public discourse and conversation about landlords and tenants? So to start with the myths about landlord, I think they also serve a political purpose, right? They serve the political purpose of preventing regularization, uh, preventing uh, strong rent controls, um, preventing um, policies that uh, acknowledge uh, the imbalance of power in, in negotiations between tenants and, and, and landlords, right? When we're assuming this is all very small scale and, and amicable and that both parties have, you know, equal say or equal power, there's less needs for, 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 for government intervention. And, and, and you think about it, it's not very diff different than conversations around the minimum wage, Right. Whenever we say, uh, whenever governments say we're going to increase the minimum wage, um, you know, it doesn't take you know more than a couple hours for, for us to see a news story with you know a, a, a the owner of, of a little small shop on Main Street saying, you know what, business aren't great right now. My spouse and I work 15 hours a day, and if we increase the minimum wage, we're going to go under, and uh, we can't afford it. Uh, minimum wage increases should not be approved. And we know that that is not the common minimum wage employer, right? We, we know the names of the very large corporations and chains and online shopping um, channels and that are actually employing the big chunk of minimum wage workers around the country. And we know that they can more than afford a dollar more an hour to their workers, but they're just not doing it because they want to keep their profit margins high because they want to keep sending um, uh, big checks to their investors. But yet it's very useful for those corporations to put the, the, the business owner at the little shop down the street as the face of the resistance to to minimum wage increases, so it's and it's very similar with with landlords too. We, we like putting the moment pop land sharp, the the moment pop landlord in in as the face of of the real estate industry. Um, you know, then attempt to build more sympathy for their claims. Um, but um, yeah, we have to we have to cut through that and we have to say no. Thanks. Like we know you can't afford to pay for the renovations of the buildings. You don't need to pass those costs to tenants. And then in terms of the, the, the stigma around tenants, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and I also devote a chapter to that in the book. In Canada, we put a lot of emphasis on home ownership as the, uh, the ultimate milestone for, for middle class to, to achieve that middle class status. And we see that a lot in the sorts of irrational choices that people make when buying a house, right? We see... Uh, um, folks uh, taking on a lot of that, buying old houses without, you know, asking for an inspection, uh, beating like thousands and thousands of dollars over the asking price. And um, there's kind of two, two, it's not rational from an economic perspective that they're doing that. 
um, there's two aspects that could help to explain that kind of behavior. One of them is the expectation the house price will keep going up and going up. So there's, it's almost like a betting on, you know, skyrocketing housing price and the fact that we will make money at the end. But the second motivation is, um, I believe, um, just a um, attempt to to join the middle class, to not be part of the tenant class, you know, not the, not to have the tenant status anymore um, because that comes with a lot of negative stigma um, in our, and it is not unique to Canada, it's a little bit of the, the sort of Anglophone and, and North American culture of the, you know, pull yourself by your bootstraps, you know, and so if you didn't buy a house, it's probably your fault because you didn't work hard enough because you, you didn't try hard enough. And now you're a tenant and good luck with that. And so, so there is a lot of stigmas that we have to deal with. Um, and I think to, it, the importance of dealing with is, is twofold. One, um, from a kind of political perspective, it's important to have, a, um, to get away with the, the stigma to, and because that would ultimately, um, reinforce the tenant movement and as people become more and more or more willing to identify with that. And then from more of a policy perspective, um, we will, we, like, if more people admit to the fact that they might rent for, for long term or that that should be an alternative to them, maybe we would shift the, the, the policy conversation a little bit to less emphasis on the, like, the, 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 the home ownership, which we see every election, especially federal elections, um, and more emphasis on like what are you gonna do about rent controls, right? Like, but but we don't see that too much in, in the political discourse. And I think, at least in part, because um, people prefer to hear about what's gonna make their home ownership dream possible, and then politicians just cave in and give that to them. I only have time, Ricardo, to squeeze in one last question, and I think that question really has to be about the tenant movement that you alluded to in your earlier response. Tell me about some of the tenant organizing you've seen in Canada, because there are several chapters in your book dedicated to the history of tenant organizing. So what sort of tenant organizing are we looking at? And why is it so powerful for tenants to work as a group? Why isn't it just enough if you're a single tenant dealing with an eviction or dealing with disrepair? Why is it so powerful that instead of coming at these problems as an individual, you join some kind of a group and work as a collective? Yes, the tenant move uh, in Canada goes back since before Confederation. We have seen uh, tenant activism. We have seen it across the country, in large cities, in small cities, pretty much everywhere. Uh, sometimes it gains momentum, sometimes it recedes a little bit to the background, but it's always there. Um, presently, in Toronto, we have two buildings on rent strikes. Uh, tenants are decided to withhold their hands um, in, an, uh, in an attempt to prevent the landlords from applying for above guideline rent increase. Um, and we have seen this in, in recent years in other buildings. We have seen it um, in other places in, in Canada. When, when talking about the tenant movement, I find useful to compare it with the labor movement, right? Like, like workers, on their own, they have very little power of negotiating with the bosses, right? And so we learned that early on, we learned that a long time ago. And so what workers decided to do, they decided to organize first at the factory floor level, right? So that they could engage with demands with their employer directly and ask for better working conditions and decent pay at their 
factory level. And then eventually they said, well, this is a bigger movement. There's, there's an entire working class that needs to be organized. And then we formed larger unions that also had a political role in, um, in pushing for legislation and, and that protects tenants overall as a class. And that has been enormously successful. There would be no middle class here or anywhere without the labor movement. Um, and I think the same lesson um, applies to, to tenants. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. There's a lot of organizing at the building level and, um, and that allows tenants to have a much more power and collectively bargaining against rent increases, against evictions, against uh, um, for repairs that, that are never done. And then there's also an attempt to create a much larger movement that will push for change in legislation. And it has happened. When we looked at some very basic um, legislations that we have in place right now uh, that protect tenants, including rent controls where they do exist, um, you can pretty much trace them back to, to moments in, in, in history and in, in those provinces where the tenant movement gained momentum and put a lot of political pressure. So that's why I think that, that, that we have a, um, a little too much emphasis on, on, on policy solutions right now from, from the part of, of, of so-called progressive folks who, who are interested in improving housing outcomes to, to low and moderate income households. We put a lot of pressures on, on, on a lot of, sorry, we put a lot of attention a lot of energy, a lot of resources on coming up with those policy solutions. And we need to channel more of that energy and resources to building the political pressure that will um, make those changes possible. Ideas is not the, what's missing here. It's really the political pressure to implement those ideas. We know the solution for these things. Um, it's just that there's no one in power right now willing or interested in implementing those solutions. So, so there's more energy, more resources, more, more focus needs to go in supporting these tenants movements and, and helping them to, to become stronger and, and politically salient so we can move to the next stage of, of talking about how to implement those things. Ricardo, thank you so much for the conversation today. It's a really fascinating read, The Tenant Class. I really found it an eye-opener, and I thought it was really well-researched and well-written. I'm so glad you could join us on the program today. Thank you for having me. Always, 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 always happy to be here. Uh, please invite me back anytime. Yes, absolutely, Ricardo. We'll wait for your next book to come out or your next report, and we would love to have you back on the program. Well, folks, we are running a little short on time today, but that was Ricardo Tranjan, an economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, talking about his really fascinating book, the Tenant Class. It was published just a few weeks ago, and I hope you have a chance to grab a copy. It's a quick but fascinating read. In the next few episodes, you'll be hearing from Angela Fox, who is um, talking to us about her podcast and book, My Blue Front Door, discussing accessible housing. And we'll be checking in with our friends at the Accessible Housing Network to get a perspective about being Canadian, disabled, and a homeowner or renter. So I hope you'll check back in with us right here on The Pulse for some of those conversations if you haven't already done so. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you can be notified about future episodes. We would, of course, love to hear from you. You can give us a call at 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. And don't forget to leave permission to play the audio on the program. 
Send us an email, share your housing stories with us, write to feedback at ami.ca or give us a shout on Twitter at AMI Audio and use the hashtag PulseAMI. If you'd like to track me down on Twitter, I'm at Joita Gupta. That's J-O-E-I-T-A-G-U-P-T-A. My technical producer today has been Mark Aflalo. Our videographer is Ted Cooper. Ryan Delahanty is the coordinator for podcasts at AMI-audio, and Andy Frank is the manager at AMI-audio. On behalf of the team, I've been your host, Joita Gupta. Thanks for listening. <laughs>